Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the live episode of Boxes and Lines. We've Boxes never done this before. Boxes and Lines! We're live! We're live! You've practiced that for weeks, people. Give them yeah, a we are. I have to say, we are live. And <laughs> our, this our is a before fa- I introduce him, has his hand in his hands. <laughs> for Christ's sake. We, yeah, we, <laughs> I haven't even asked him a question. But thank you, those who uh, dialed in. It's not live with a live studio audience. Audience. That's my French word. Audience. That's oh, his oh. French French accent. We do have a lot of people on the buy side and the sell side uh, listening in this evening. So we appreciate it. It's election day for whatever that matters. But I want to um, introduce, and John and I are very thrilled to have Mike Green here, Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager from Logica Advisors. And um, obviously, uh, I think a lot of people in the industry already know him because we had a ton of people sign up uh, to listen to this. And I don't think it was for you and I, John. So Welcome no. aboard, Mike. Thank you very well, much. I mean, for doing maybe this. a few of them were for us. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. give us a Dude, little credit. My mom, my mom's on from Ireland, and she said your accent is shite. Anyway, so to, <laughs> to, to kick it, uh, kick she it off, she did not say my <laughs> accent was shite. I don't believe that. <laughs> to kick it off with Mike, Mike joined uh, Logica early in the year, 2020, the crazy year that it is. And I understand there's an interesting story, Mike, how you met with uh, the founder there and President Wayne and how you both arrived both arrive at a similar view on straddles. Can you tell us that? Yeah, so so very quickly, Wayne and I actually met over Twitter. Um, he is uh, somewhat of a uh, vol philosopher in, on Twitter. Um, it was one of those interesting situations. He posted something and I immediately said, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. I reached out, suggested we sit down and chat. And uh, we, we sat down in, I think it was February of 2019, thinking you know, we, we did the uh, appropriate thing that you're supposed to do with a, a Twitter meet and greet where you <laughs> arrange for a neutral location and you set a, a date for you know, 15 to 30 minutes so that you can bail out if the person is absolutely crazy. Nice. It turned into a roughly two and a half hour meeting in which uh, we, we realized that we had uh, incredible similarities in terms of the way that we, we viewed the world. And, in particular, both Wayne and I were of the view that volatility and more importantly, the directional exposure that could be obtained with options were just too cheap. That effectively they were not appropriately pricing in a very important feature of options, which is actually that they provide you with non-recourse leverage. So most people think about options as kind of a way to protect your portfolio, or they think about options as a way to speculate on you know, kind of extreme outcomes. For Wayne and I, it, it, it's you know really just quite simply a way to engage in high expectancy trades, you know high positive expectancy trades with leverage and no recourse. And in an environment in which we think that there are some very distinct changes in market structure that are contributing to a lot of the behavior that we see, and most people who are tuning in will know that that's going to have something to do with passive investing. You know, that created opportunities for us to express portfolios in a way that, that nobody else did. And so, you know, we ended up bonding on that front. Initially, at the time I was working uh, for Peter Thiel in his private family office on the liquid asset side, um, considered bringing Wayne in as an external manager uh, that Peter allocated capital to. And as Wayne and I spent more and more time talking, ultimately it became clear that what he was doing was very, was similar enough to what I was doing, but he had quantified it in terms of a quantitative quantitative trading system that it created some extraordinary leverage in terms of my ability to to do stuff that I had just not done in a very long time. And so the the two of us ended up partnering uh, on, I joined the firm officially in January, although we'd been in negotiations for about two months at that point. Uh, We launched on January 1st, the absolute return product, which is our flagship product, taking my insights from passive and combining them with Wayne's quantitative trading approach. 
and we've just been incredibly fortunate that uh, the market has, has given us the opportunity to uh, express a unique point of view this year in a, in a profitable way for our investors. Nice. A, tw a Twitter date that went right. It could have gone terribly wrong. As I've told other people, I, I have a penchant for meeting people in unusual places. So I, uh, and with I Peter Thiel, I mean, it's a, it's a very impressive background. I wish you could uh, invest my money, but with a meager amount that Ronan pays me, I doubt that it would be worth your while. It's another one of his jokes, along with his shit Irish accent, right? Yeah. That he complains about his payment. Right. But uh, you bring up Peter Thiel, we actually have a question for you before... Yeah. Uh, John ruins it and asks you real serious questions, <laughs> but um, you know he's obviously a fairly famous guy. And so, what what investment lesson did you learn from him that you carry with you today? So the easiest thing to take away from spending time with Peter is to learn to really not care very much what other people think. <laughs> and you know, most people feel this overwhelming need to show that they're smart, to show that they have um, that they understand what somebody is saying, even if they don't, right? So the polite nod, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, no, I get it, you know, et cetera. Peter doesn't do that. And I think that it's like, he has, he has such genuine confidence in his own intelligence that if something doesn't make sense to him, he will just keep asking the question in a variety of different ways, trying to make sure that he understands it better than anyone else. I think that's actually a very liberating point of view. Right? I, I'm not sure that everyone can pull it off because yeah. most of us try to go along to get along in some framework, but Peter is extraordinarily unique in that perspective. And for me, that was, it was an important lesson. That's fantastic. D does he do it respectfully or does he literally just go, what the hell are you saying? Uh, he can do both. It depends, <laughs> right? So if, uh, if, if you are a world leader or, or a politician or a noted author, um, there's a reasonable chance that he will be very polite, unfailingly polite in the first generation. But if, if you get three questions in and you're still basically avoiding and increasingly demonstrating that you yourself have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, which is frighteningly common, yes. right? Um, then I've seen Peter lose his temper on that stuff. So he, he, can't, he can be abrupt and rude. Nice. Well, speaking of not knowing what you're talking about, it is election day. <laughs> <laughs> what, now you're turning to me. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Now, I'll pay now, more. Let's go I'll to pay you more. Ramsey. This is on tape. Yeah. Okay, ask a question, yeah. John. <laughs> Thank you, Ronan. Well, we are on this most unusual day, election day. People have been nervous uh, for a variety of reasons, but um, certainly in terms of um, people thinking about market volatility, um, I'm just interested to get your thoughts on what do you think the potential is for um, a, a prolonged period of, of volatility around, um, around the election. Obviously, some of that depends upon uh, wh whether there's a clear result. And, um, uh, but, but then even beyond that, uncertainty over uh, policies, whether it's fiscal policy or, uh, or other government policy, um, do, do you see us... Um, do, do you see the potential for March kind of level uh, levels of volatility returning? How do you think about all that? So um, the quick answer is, is I think that we're returning to the levels of March volatility are hard, but not impossible. The key difference between today and March is in, in March, you had a combination of an extraordinary jump in correlation, implied correlation, as well as a jump in single stock volatility. The single stock volatility was elevated because for the most part, people had no idea what was going to happen financially in terms of the fundamentals of most companies. The correlation jump obviously is a, system, you know, a systemic risk type framework, again, a mm global shutdown of economic activity associated with a pandemic is unprecedented. And so those two factors combined with many of the dynamics that I've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the illiquidity that is created by passive investment, the, the dynamics of everyone trying to move in the same place or trade the same vehicles at the same time, I think those all contributed to an extraordinary environment. The environment that we're in today where the VIX is very elevated, we were talking about this before we came on, it's hard to actually put in context how high the volatility is right now. You know, the levels that the VIX was at last Friday, you know, in the 40 range, like you legitimately are talking about levels of volatility that are similar to what we had in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, mm. right? Where the markets closed for three days, we were uncertain if there were additional terrorist attacks coming. Markets were down at that point, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% off their highs. Like that, 
felt fairly normal in hindsight versus this extraordinarily high level of implied volatility as markets by and large are sitting near highs, at least domestically, right? Internationally and on, on smaller indices, it's, it's a little bit less true. Um, what's been unique this time around, I do think actually plays to some of the election components, which is that we have seen extraordinarily elevated single stock volatility for some mega cap names. So the Apples, Microsofts, Amazons, et cetera, the world, their volatility has by and large exploded. Um, you know, Apple, as of last week, at one point was trading with an implied volatility for an at the money option in kind of the 50 range, a 50 implied vol, right? Just if you kind of reverse engineer that, that's roughly the equivalent of a, a, a cost of equity in the 14 to 15% range, right? So for a $2 trillion company, have a cost of equity at that level, whether it's reflected in the actual fundamentals or the valuation relative to fundamentals, like that's pretty unprecedented. What we think has happened is that the market has actually priced in a Biden victory a while ago. And hmm. effectively what you're seeing is markets increasingly pricing in a dramatic increase in the, in the cost of capital via a capital gains tax increase. Hmm. And so stock replacement strategies where you sell Apple and buy call options on Apple have become very, very profitable as a, you know, relative to the alternative. If I think about a 15% capital gains rate tax today or a 20% capital gains rate tax today versus January 1st of 2021, potentially becoming 39.6% under an ordinary income framework you're very, very well compensated by taking those profits today, replacing your equity with either a repurchase of the equity, or if you're uncertain, do exactly what appears people have done, buy single stock volatility to replace that. That does feel like that's what's in play and that by and large, the market is trying to incorporate some elements of rotation. We're just not seeing that type of elevated volatility in sectors that have underperformed, right? So mm -hmm. you look at the Russell 2000 value, for example, that volatility is nowhere near as elevated. Traditionally, that would be associated with economic distress or credit spreads. We're just not seeing anything that looks like that. And it's pretty well explained by the fact that there's just no profits for the last five years for people to offset. So it does feel like this is already pricing in the dynamics associated with a Biden victory. And that elevated level of volatility is just making people very, very nervous. It's, you know, it, it's extremely hard to maintain this level of volatility. It's like, really, really hard. Yeah. I, and I guess uh, one other question I had is kind of the involvement of uh, the retail um, investor in or the piling on of the retail investor um, to the extent that that has uh, contributed to some of the increase in market volume in recent months. Um, we, coupled with this heightened kind of prolonged period of volatility you've been talking about, is there a concern that enough retail uh, investors, particularly those who are relatively new um, investors, get, get burned badly enough that they just exit and, and, and don't come back? Are there, what, how do you think about the risks of increased, uh, or if, if you believe there are some, um, of increased retail participation. So I think there's no question that there has been an impact associated with that, right? You offer people free options trades over Robinhood, they are going to take advantage of the same thing that Wayne and I were talking about in terms of the non-recourse leverage associated with that. And they will speculate with the thousand dollars they have in the hopes of turning it into a hundred thousand as compared to turning it into, you know, 1100 bucks. Right. It's just a, the, the sex appeal between those two is is undeniably in favor of trying to make huge returns. To my knowledge, I, I have to confess, I've never traded on the Robinhood platform. I highly doubt that they have, um, you know, significant scenario analysis planning and a, and a uh, in, you know, an implied volatility modeling calculator that can graphically demonstrate to you what happens to the price of the option should implied volatility retreat or what the sort of multiple that you would have to get. I, I, do, I do think that there is an element of, you know, rookie type behavior that is involved with this, but I don't think, I, I think it's always easy to blame neophytes and innocents um, for market behavior that doesn't appear to make any sense. You know, kind of, as I said at the top, I can create a very compelling reason why you would want to replace stocks 
you know, one, you want to take your profits and two, you want to replace your stock exposure with equity exposure because of the uncertainty about what happens to your capital gains tax rate next year. And so that, like that Robinhood, while I'm sure it plays a role, you know, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of five to $15 billion worth of AUM, as I understand it across the entire platform, it's right. just not very much money. Right? I mean, it's just not. And so yes, on a levered basis, can it marginally influence things? Sure. Do I think that's driving it? No, I really don't. I, I think the other thing that is contributing, and, and we wrote about this um, on our website, we have a uh, logicofunds.com, we have a white paper uh, talking titled, let's talk about SKU. And one of the clear things that has happened is, is that there's been a distinct deterioration or reduction in the quantity of option volatility that people are willing to sell that has largely been a byproduct of the underperformance of vol or option selling strategies like call overwriting, et cetera. That feels more important to me than the retail participation. Mm. Cool. So let me ask a question, even though your inner monologue might be right now, like did these fucking guys prepare for this podcast? Um, I actually did. <laughs> so I did some reading on you, Mike, and I, you know, I see a lot about, um, you viewing uh, passive investing as an issue. And it sort of became a big focus of yours. And the idea that passive flows have reached a tipping point where they could trump fundamentals is something I've seen you say or written about you quite a bit. And I'm just uh, curious if you could tell us the story there and how that came about and what your views are, please. Well, mostly I was young and I needed the money, but um, no. <laughs> That's always uh, my excuse. Um, the, since 2015, give or take, most experienced investors, particularly those with a value bent, have struggled to understand some of the behavior that's occurred in the markets. And there's an awful lot of laying it at the feet of the Fed. I think that plays a role. Um, but the data sets don't really actually fit that narrative. And so um, as I was digging into this and trying to understand what could be happening, what was driving this behavior. I began to, to do the simple work of saying, well, wait a second, who are the biggest buyers and who are the biggest players in the market today? And in a very different fashion than what we had in kind of the 2000 to 2007, eight timeframe where the growth of hedge funds largely outstripped anything else, right? Remember that hedge funds didn't really exist outside of you know, the Michael Steinharts, et cetera, in 1998, 99, obviously you had um, Julian Robertson and a few others, but it was kind of a quiet, sleepy place that was kind of off to the side, dominated by guys like Paul Tudor Jones. In the aftermath of the dot-com cycle, it became very distinctly institutional. There was an extraordinary growth of that, that business. And hedge funds, by and large, behave on a mean reversion basis, right? They try to find something really expensive to sell against something that's really cheap, or they try to find something with bad fundamentals to pair against something that has good fundamentals. That sort of synthetic canceling out of market exposure is what largely dominated the markets from, give or take, 2000 to, you know, let's say safely, probably 2010. Around 2011, 2012, something very different began to happen. You began to actually see beta exposure became the underlying feature that people would seek that led to a lot of underperformance for hedge funds. And as I dug into it, it became very clear that what was actually happening was that people were not considering the impact of the flows of passive vehicles. And so I, I did something that I was a little bit surprised that nobody else had done which was really try to dig into the rules of passive index construction, really try to dig into the rules of how uh, passive investors behave, not just the 401k participant who is contributing their money every two weeks, but the entities themselves. What are the rules that they're governed by? Because at the end of the day, they have to be very rule-based. And what became very clear was that they are price insensitive players. They literally operate off of the world's simplest algorithms that have uh, positive feedback loops, right? So you can summarize Vanguard. The, the very simple rules are, if you give me cash, then buy. What price should I buy at? Whatever the market price is. If you ask for cash, if I get a redemption, what do they do? They sell. What's the right price to do that? Whatever price you can get in the market, you've received a non-discretionary instruction, buy or sell. And 
as I dug into this and I spent more time researching it, I, I came to some really you know, unique conclusions, effectively, that we were seeing a dramatic increase in correlation under the market, that we were seeing a dramatic increase in the rise in fragility in markets. Uh, and that's what I've been warning people about, that we've set up a regulatory framework that increasingly forces people into passive strategies. And in the process of doing so, they're destroying the benefits of diversification and the common good that exists that we all call the market. Can I ask you a little bit about that? Because you, you say you set a regulatory framework um, that forces them into doing that. The, uh, so, so again, I haven't thought about this as deeply as Ronan um, has, I'm sure, but... Uh, Thank you, John. I, yeah. <laughs> but By the way, that's think... why Ronan is actually our largest investor. No, um, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Don't, don't tell him that. That's where your bonuses go, John. Uh, yeah, right. Um, I mean, clearly there, there is a role for passive investment strategies, and at some level it feels like this has to be driven by investor preference or at least like investor assumptions about how they should be investing their money or where they should be putting them. Um, and so I, I'm just interested to get your thoughts on what, what do you think are the, um, the structural uh, aspects that have, that have caused that? Um, and it, it, is there some point at which it becomes self-correcting? That is, if people, if enough people come to the conclusion, maybe I'm really not best off necessarily um, just putting my money in one place and letting it ride for whatever number of years, um, that there will be some pullback. So unfortunately, I, I think that's, that's generally viewed as the narrative that this has been um, preference-based rotation, that people have said passive is better, therefore I'm going that way. The largest source of the growth of passive has actually been in things like 401ks, um, it has also been very high under uh, registered investment advisor platforms, et cetera. Um, but most of those changes have actually happened because of a regulatory framework. So in 2005, there was a change uh, in regulations tied to what was called the Pension Protection Act. Mm. That hit 401ks in particular. So traditionally, if you had invested, <clears throat> excuse me, if you had invested in a 401k as an employee, you would first have to elect to participate. So it was actually your choice, not the default setting. That changed in 2005 with the Pension Protection Act, which made it an opt-out rather than opt-in system. The second thing that happened, I apologize, there appears to be a fire in California. No one's ever heard that before. Um, the, uh, the second thing that happened is there was a complaint or a concern that uh, 401k investors tended to suffer from inattention on two fronts. One, if they did not make an election of how to invest their, pro, their, their funds, they automatically went into a money market fund. And so somewhere around 30 to 35% of all 401ks never actually even made it into the market. Uh, they would literally just sit in cash and slowly accumulate. And that was fine when interest rates were 9%, mm. but as interest rates are, you know, one, two, three percent, that becomes a, a much bigger issue. Um, so in 2005, that also changed and it, they introduced what's called the Qualified Default Investment Alternative. That became the default asset that you would be invested in when you opted in automatically, right? So you basically took a job, you began investing in the QDIA. Those began typically as S&P 500 or balanced funds that tried to offer a combination of bonds and equities. And um, that fairly rapidly progressed to what is called the um, to what is called a target date fund. And in 2012, target date funds became the default investment for 401ks. And now today, if you were to look at a new employee joining a firm, you would almost certainly see them uh, invested in a target date fund. The participation rates for those under the age of about 40 in things like target date funds is north of 85%. It literally is the dominant feature. If you look at projections from Vanguard, and I would argue that they actually have a disincentive to tout this, they would suggest that by, the, by their estimates by 2023, in excess of 80% of all 401ks will have a single asset in them, a target date fund. Wow. So that would be... That. As I have a question that really pertains to this one, this one point. Is it okay no. if I jump in here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Guys, or, or Mike, 
Um, don't target dates funds start to reduce equity exposure as baby boomers age? Is it possible to project under what conditions that flows into passive go net negative and what that would mean for big cap tech names? So that's it, absolutely a concern. It's something that I have highlighted. Um, you're, and I would encourage people actually, uh, an MIT professor named Jonathan Parker actually just came out with a white paper on this. And this is part of what's challenging about this is that when we talk about much of the theory that underpins how the market is managed today, particularly things like passive, you're talking about referring back to academic literature from the 50s and 60s, right? Modern portfolio theory, sharp ratios, optimal portfolio allocations, et cetera. All of those are 40 to 50 years old and are very dependent on the assumptions of the efficient market hypothesis that made those tractable in terms of the mathematical problems. Just literally in the last three to six months, you've started to see academic research that is beginning to challenge some of the core assumptions that sit under that. And so uh, an MIT professor, I believe his name is Jonathan Parker, just came out with a piece on target date funds that talks about the dynamics of rebalancing. Uh, his focus is actually that it creates a new path for uh, the market to become increasingly stable because, for example, when equities fall and bonds rise, when the Fed cuts interest rates, that creates an automatic need for rebalancing that then causes money to flow into equities, right? So it becomes a vol dampening exercise. I think that's absolutely correct. The questioner is asking the really critical question, what happens when money starts to flow out and net, right? And we're not yet at a point within target date funds in particular because they're still growing so rapidly that that seems to be the underlying characteristic. We will see that start to happen, right? So as, as target date funds become more penetrated and broadly passive vehicles, even if they're not in target date funds, um, as they have increasingly been used by RIA type platforms, you will start to see environments in which money flowing into equities turns into money flowing out of equities. We haven't seen a lot of examples of that. We just, it, you know, they're, they're, I've said this before, you can literally count on, you know, one hand the number of times that passive vehicles have actually experienced outflows. Uh, we didn't actually see that, for example, in March, right? What happened in March was, in my analysis, driven by active managers, not by passive managers. It was exacerbated by the conditions that exist in the market, but it was not a passive manager outflow. So do you, do you think that there is any kind of optimal balance as between uh, amount of funds that are in active versus uh, passive um, strategies? I think in August of last year, there was there was a lot of talk and discussion about um, passive strategies eclipsing, um, you know, passing $4 trillion or whatever it was. Is that a, um, uh, is there some kind of optimal balance? Is the move into passive kind of just a sort of runaway train that um, is not really uh, stoppable? How do you think about that? Um. Well, so just very quickly, I just got an email from the SEC. So um, the, on this topic, so like there, there is investigation on this stuff. People are concerned about it. There's it's a not about Ronan, is it? The risks. Sorry. Yeah, that I'm was sorry, my joke, it. John. I was about to say it was about uh, you complaining yeah, about okay. you. Okay, all right, yeah. No, well, actually, it was about the accent. That's an, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> so the. Um, I think people are, are increasingly aware of it. I've spent a lot of time obviously talking about it. And so it's been helpful. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I do view it as part, um, I mean, absolutely when I go out and talk, there's an element of me speaking my book, right? And any, if anything though, to be clear, there's an element of speaking against it. It would be easier for me to say nothing and simply profit from it. But I do think that this is actually a very existential risk that exists. Now, to John's question, is there an optimal level? The irony is, is that passive as it, you know, the, the, the introduction of passive facilitates a less volatile market. It creates, when you introduce heterogeneity of investors, people who buy or sell for different reasons, it makes it easier to facilitate transactions. So in passive, in really simple terms, as I said, is, is the world's simplest algorithm. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. And so when money is coming into passive, 
it means that there is a ready buyer for most assets, right? Now that's fine. And on our analysis, up until about 25% passive share, really about 30% passive share, it introduces a vol dampening effect by increasing the heterogeneity of investors. But as you pass that point, you're effectively increasing the risk that you enter into an environment in which nobody has the discretion to trade with you and volatility can begin to increase. And so the, the critical events of last August were that passive investment vehicles passed active discretionary investment vehicles in terms of total assets under management in US equities. Um, it's not quite 50% share by market cap yet. I think it's about 43, 44%. Um, but it's an accelerating pace because if you think about the quantity of assets that are managed under passive, for those under the age of 40, it's north of 90%. And so simple demographics, a, a mere portfolio shift is gonna end up driving crazy growth of passive. And on our analysis, once you start to pass about 50% in terms of passive as a share market, and remember we're 43, 44 now, you start to enter into dramatically, exponentially increasing probabilities that you can't find somebody to buy from you or sell to you, depending on the, the size of the passive flows. And so the markets run a very real risk of becoming discontinuous under those conditions. Interesting. Nice. So can we switch gears here a little bit? I wanted to talk to you about correlation, Mike. Um, earlier in this chat and even before we kicked it off, we were talking about March and being just crazy and the volatility there. Uh, but I think in March, we saw an average 470 of the S&P 500. Those names were moving in the same direction. And like sort of the question is, it's not like, so, so what? Who gives a shit? Uh, that happens. But um, more of, you know, is this a really a big indication of how unhealthy our market is? Uh, what's the action step from here? What can we do about this? Well, um, that was I'll a great you, question, right? Uh, that was very, very nice, so Ronan. You have to you have to I keep humoring him. Keep humor him, or he'll start uh, spewing. Um, uh, I, I need this, Mike. Profanities. My, yeah. Mike's, Mike and my birthday is two days apart. We learned that's, before that's the right. podcast. See, <laughs> oh, that's true. Um, so <laughs> let me let me do this. I just want to I want to share um, a screen very quickly. Um, let me just. And then I, I will uh, make sure that I let that go. You guys should see a, a slide that says a period of record. Oh, I do. Wow. Yep. yep. So very impressive. What we've done here is we've actually calculated the correlation of the S and P on a constant volatility basis back into the 1920s. Right. So this is actually really important because there's two ways you can get an increase in correlation. You can have a dramatic increase in volatility. Market moves a lot. So if you think about a day where the S and P goes up 10 percent inevitably you're going to have high correlation. You just can't get that move without basically everything going in the same way. Yeah. Likewise, in an environment in which the S&P doesn't move, the odds are very high that the correlation amongst the names in the S&P is basically zero. All right. So this is different than the traditional presentation of correlation, which would be almost impossible to calculate back this far. But what we've actually done is we've held volatility effectively constant and are then showing the levels of correlation that this would imply. We, we retitle it as what we call co-movement, which to your point is basically saying what fraction of stocks in the S&P are moving in the same direction on any given day. Yep. And um, if you go back to the events of Volmageddon, <laughs> this was right before Volmageddon. And so the way that I looked at the events of Volmageddon and the, the precursor to Volmageddon was that you actually had extraordinarily low correlation given the levels or uh, extraordinarily low correlation relative to the underlying trend. And to get a rise in volatility that would lead to a doubling of the VIX and a collapse of products like the XIV, all you would need to do is have an event that was large enough to trip the correlation metrics, right? This is what we had going into uh, 2019. And then this is what's happened in 2020. Right. So, I mean, to put this in perspective, here's the 1930s. Hmm. We are running levels of correlation that are completely out of control. And it's being driven on our, on our analysis because people are increasingly trading the S&P 500, not as a series of individual stocks, but roughly 90% of the transaction activity out there appears to be in one form or another tied to index creation, redemption process, arbitrage around futures, et cetera. So like it, 
this is the underlying feature of the market and it's extraordinarily risky. What it tells you is, is that there are no real diversification benefits that exist anymore. And so I, I highlight this chart in part because, you know, we started talking, I started talking about this back here. We're now sitting up here in totally unprecedented world. You know, I, on our analysis, it's just going to continue to get worse. Now I need to figure out how to stop sharing my screen. There we go. Um, Did you make up the term Valmageddon or is that something I should have known, but I love it. Uh, I think you should have known it, but... Um, I, yeah, frankly, I'm a little embarrassed. Right? John, John, you, you look, you look so surprised there, John. Yeah. John. John actually messaged me to ask that question. Mm. That's what you do for a partner on a podcast, John, okay? Was, you look out for one another. Oh, and you right. fucking so turn I, your I, I, Mike is already so much regretting his decision to come on this podcast. No, no, not um, at all. No. Not at yeah. all. Nothing else that makes Jamie very happy, so... Um, <laughs> And guys, I have one coming in. If I could interrupt the uh, yeah. the, the internal oh, banter, yeah, yeah, no, unrelated to Valmageddon, although okay. what a, a great term. Um, and again, I'm encouraging listeners to send me please, questions because otherwise you're gonna have to listen to me. So this one will rename remain anonymous, but please send them in. So, and this this leads me to believe that this is a long time listener, first time caller, Mike, because this will this is something you're gonna like answering, but. In this scenario, right, or, or perhaps in a, in a scenario like this, what happens then when passive wants to sell, but there's no active left to buy? And I know you famously kind of walk through this, and yeah. uh, I think it's really fun to listen to. So I'm happy to. Really fun to listen to. Well, and I'm fun, but interesting. Fun. Yeah, <laughs> Fun's the wrong word. Fun. <laughs> um. No, so, the, so the way that I've run these simulations, um, which is the only place that you can kind of, you know, the only way you can get an insight is by basically trying to think through what's the incentive structure, how do the individual actors play, and then give them a stochastic element. And the only way you can do that is by modeling it, right? So if you build a series of agents that are endowed with the rules associated with momentum investors, value investors, passive investors, et cetera, and you set them loose in a virtual trading environment and you say, um, trade amongst yourselves, right, with, then I'm going to endow you with different flows in terms of investors, et cetera. The, the quick answer, and, and I'll, I'll share another slide just to show this, but the quick answer is, is that you, you enter into a discontinuous market. And so um, I'll show another slide here. Uh, I'm going to show two slides here just to explain. Let's see here. You two have become a Zoom pro over the Yeah, you're showing of off yeah. your, your screen yeah. sharing. Mm, no, I'm yeah. just actually trying to prevent people from having to listen to me talk. Okay. Um, John, did you really know about Valmageddon? I, of course. I mean, frankly, <laughs> I'm, as I said, I'm <laughs> a little stunned eye, that you didn't. <laughs> so right. we, we, could, we could talk about more of the details around Valmageddon because that was actually a very fun event. But it, in, the, the really funny part about Valmageddon is, is that in our analysis, it actually looks like the Fed caused it by changing the treatment of volatility products and what's called CCAR, the, the capital adequacy ratios for banks on February 2nd. And so on February 2nd, 2018, they changed the rules. They dramatically increased the costs associated with hedging volatility, short volatility positions that set off a scramble to buy volatility, which then resulted in the collapse of XIV, which is not the story most people will tell you, but is what I actually think happened. So um, you can blame the Fed. How's that feel? Um, so in, in really simple terms, this is actually laying out um, what the model would say uh, an active manager community behaves like. And the way that I programmed the rules for active managers is I went out and I asked active managers. And I was, it was one of these weird things where I was completely shocked that nobody else had actually done this. But so I went out and I surveyed investors and I asked them a really simple question. I said, you're a portfolio manager, you have 5% cash in your portfolio. New money comes in or money goes out, how do you behave? What's your propensity to buy or sell in response to that money flow conditional on valuation? And so what you actually get in terms of the response ratios, and obviously this is compiling responses and using a, a uh, polynomial best fit line, but your propensity to sell rises as valuations rise. You receive a redemption request. Am I going to use cash in my portfolio or am I going to sell securities to meet that redemption request? An active manager will say the higher the valuations are, the more willing I am to sell. 
the converse is true in terms of, of buying. I receive new cash. If valuations are one times, I have 100% propensity to buy. I'm absolutely going to buy. Thank you for giving me additional cash. If valuations are at 50 times, I've got a 5% probability of deploying it. And if they're at 100 times, just to illustrate the extreme reducto ad absurdum nature of, of what we did, there's no, pro like you're just not gonna buy, right? You, you, you'd feel insane. What's interesting is, is if you then put agents with these characteristics into a market and you have them receive or have received cash in in the form of a new inflow or outflows, what you actually discover is that because Sorry, because the intersection of these two lines is almost exactly 50-50 at exactly the market's historical average PE, what's actually happening is the market is exhibiting mean reverting characteristics. I mean, it's, it's, it's really straightforward. And by the way, there's no question about interest rates or anything else going on here, right? This is literally just money coming in and out. Um, I mentioned that there's a bunch of research that's coming out. I would encourage people to look at the recent work by Ralph Koijin and um, I think it's Marcel Gabay at Harvard. Um, they have come out with a piece called uh, In Search of the Origin of Financial Fluctuations that basically says the exact same thing I'm saying here. That came out in uh, September or October of this year. And so it's, it's brand new, um, but it, it says the exact same thing. Okay. So that is pretty straightforward. Now let's go and look at what happens when you introduce passive players, right? So remember that a passive player has the world's simplest algorithm. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. There's 100% propensity to buy and 100% propensity to sell. And so as you add passive share, what you end up doing is shifting the market away from that historical mean reversion characteristic towards a flow determined environment. And when that happens, instead of mean reversion, you get mean expansion. Initially, the market looks a lot like it would have historically. It just gets a little bit more expensive and then falls faster, but never reaches the levels of historical undervaluation that it might have. Does that sound an awful lot like 2000 into 2009? And then valuations can start to go completely bananas, right? Now you'll notice that I've got the chart stopping there. That's because it literally goes up and becomes completely insane. And then when an outflow happens to answer Jamie's question in terms of the simulation, like we literally have scenarios in which the market just goes to zero because you can't find a buyer for the selling. It's, it's incredible. Crazy. Yeah. And I have, I have another question here. It changes gears just in, um, a slight bit, but really plays into this. If passive, and again, it's an anonymous, if passive investing continues to grow and mutes the benefit of identifying mispriced equities, is the best, best path to monetizing mispricing through active private equity buyouts? Well, so the challenge is, is that, and, and this was shown on the chart, right? Passive investing inflates valuations because you effectively have an investor who views cash as toxic, right? right? It's, we saw this in the oil markets in May right? Storing oil without proper storage facilities is impossible. It's literally a toxic asset. You will poison the land. You can't put it in your garage. Like you, you just can't hold it. And as a result, in order to get people to take it, the price had to go negative. So cash can be thought of in the same way with passive investing, right? It is toxic. You violate your fiduciary duty if you hold cash, right? And so under those conditions, what you end up with is a general inflation of valuations that makes it increasingly difficult for private equity or activists to be involved. And, and that's largely what we've seen, right? I mean, certainly we hear tons of stories about the cash on the sidelines in the private equity space. For all I can tell, private equity basically seems to be trading amongst themselves at this point. Interesting. So, so do you have, I may have missed it, but do you have specific policy prescriptions that you think will um, will uh, interrupt this pattern or alleviate this uh, whatever I mean uh, you know if of, of, avoid the end days if that's what we're headed toward um, so the the quick answer is yes we have given policy prescriptions I think that there is a very low probability of that happening 
for the very simple reason that I'm Mike Green and I'm not Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera, right? And so if, um, you know, there's a, a very good Fed paper that came out uh, first about a, two years ago, about uh, 2018 after I spoke with the Boston Fed. And then after that, uh, they've done an update on it in the aftermath of the March dynamics. And if you read this, the paper is titled, Is Passive Investing a Systemic Risk, right? And it literally reads like a he said, she said, because that's exactly what it should read like. Mike Green comes and tells the Fed that this is a catastrophe. And who are they going to call? Larry Fink and not John Bogle, but, you know, whoever is currently uh, the policy person at Vanguard, right? And so it literally reads like some market participants say X and other market participants say, you know, the inverse of X, right? That, uh, that these are all not a problem. And that's gonna to continue to be the case until an event occurs. And that's one of the reasons why Volmageddon was so nice um, is that it created an event in which I could point to it and say, no, I was right, <laughs> right? So I don't want that to occur, but I do think that we are heading towards that. Nice to see another question come in, Jamie. Are you gonna yeah, I couldn't find my, my button. Um, so I actually have two questions here. Hold on, let me read the second one. I just see one. Um, yeah, okay, I'm gonna really butcher these names and it's going to be one of the kind of thing like, Jamo, you should have known these people. So what, um, what was your biggest takeaway from your conversation with Mark Cahodes and Bill Fenkelstein as it relates to cryptocurrency. Yes, Bill Fleckenstein. Um, yeah, Fleckenstein, thank you. No problem. Uh, so I think crypto is actually a very interesting asset for two reasons. Um, first, separate Bitcoin from you know, uh, what I would refer to as tokenization, right? And so broadly, I would separate the world into Bitcoin and Ethereum type products. Bitcoin is digital gold. It's, I mean, that's what it's trying to be. We're seeing a dramatic increase in correlation between Bitcoin and gold. It is effectively the digital off-ramp that says, I don't want to play this game anymore take my money out of useful circulation, turn it into a useless rock or digital rock um, and set it to the side. And so the, the easiest way for me to think about what Bitcoin is, is it's just gold with an adoption curve that gives it a positive alpha relative to, to uh, gold. Um, the problem that I have with Bitcoin is, is that it has no flexibility. So the, the biggest issue, um, as I see it, as it relates to, to Bitcoin, um, is that it penalizes people for trying and failing. And that's a, that's a real problem. That's a, a genuine, genuine problem. It's one of the reasons that we had the innovations of the new world and the English common uh, law systems that favored uh, debtors over creditors and gave them the opportunity to escape from mistakes. Right? That's a really critical feature of a risk-taking system. And Bitcoin fails on that front. Gold has greater um, elasticity. If the price of gold rises dramatically, we will figure out how to turn the salt water that contains gold into gold that can be used. Right? That just can't be done when you have a hard stop, a hard limit like you do with Bitcoin. So I, I ultimately think Bitcoin is going to fail, but I think the same characteristics likely mean it's going to go a little crazy. Um, Mark and Bill, Bill is, is more skeptical. Mark is more enthusiastic about the tokenization aspects of crypto. And that would be more along the lines of an Ethereum type platform. That's where I share actually a lot of enthusiasm. And it relates, of course, back to how I think about passive. In really simple terms, passive is like a, an extinction event for diversity in a financial system. If you look at a Vanguard target date fund, for example, if you have the 2035 target date fund, I'm you know, 50 years old, 2035 is ostensibly when I'm supposed to hit retirement at 65. Um, that product has four holdings in it. It has you, you know, total market index for the US, total market index for the world XUS, which has something like 8,000 equity securities in it. It has the Lehman bond aggregate 
the old Lehman bond aggregate for the US in the form of the Vanguard Total Market Bond Index. It has the same thing on the international front. And the challenge is, is that there's no room in there for preferred stock, convertible debt, um, you know, anything interesting, et cetera, right? And so those become abandoned securities that do not benefit from the flows associated with Vanguard target date funds, right? Now, when you is do it? that, you're effectively robbing the system of the degrees of freedom that are necessary for a complete market. And that's the exciting part about tokenization. This is a tokenization or smart contracts like Ethereum can create conditions under which you could enter into almost unlimited numbers of variations on securities. And more importantly, because they're digital, I can actually compare the embedded features of those contracts across all assets. So I can say, what is the value of this covenant? and turn to the market and actually have the market price that for me across multiple securities with and without, they're separable, right? And so that's incredibly exciting to me, but it can only take hold after passive loses. Well, that's very sobering. And as you were speaking, I actually, it occurred to me, I believe that all of my IEX retirement assets are actually invested in that particular fund that you mentioned. It yeah. should be much shorter because again, with the meager amount that Ronan pays me, I am going to have to continue working for many, many years. You get the star uh, on this podcast, John. Yeah. That's a right. form of payment. <laughs> it's a form of pain for Mike, but it's a form of payment for you. <laughs> Thank you. I, whatever, little crumbs. The today. Any Jesus. little crumbs I can get. Any little crumbs. <laughs> um, Did you have a question, John? <laughs> no, I, no, I'm sorry. I didn't. Oh, wait, I have um, a question. Yeah. JR, go. go. Continue. No, 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 because John's just rambling on. No, about uh, one, of the, one of the chat's questions Mike, is more Ronan impersonation. Yeah, Somebody wants I, more Ronan yeah, impersonation. Yeah. Is that me? You sound like Mrs. Doubtfire. I didn't know yeah. you were trying to <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Uh, so this is from um, a colleague, Catherine Kumpf, who's here at, at IEX. And she's asking if you've evaluated the impact of passive AUM on certain sectors. So perhaps, for instance, the REITs or across different market caps? Um, and uh, are there certain pockets of the marketplace that are more susceptible to dislocations as fundamentals diverge from stock prices? Yeah, I know that. I mean, that's a fantastic, fantastic question. She's and a great hire. We have a lot of very <laughs> smart people here. A absolutely. Now that it's been established that Ronan underpays his employees and puts them in the No, not all of them. I think mainly just me. Way, but yeah. <laughs> it just got um, a little awkward there. Yeah. No, so, um, wait, I just got a message from her. She says she has multiple retirement choices. Sorry, John. Um, yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, Damn. Once again. So, so it's, it's a great question. And it's actually one of the real ironies that exists is that when you look at, quote unquote, cheap sectors of the market, right? And so people will highlight high yielding small business development or business development companies, or in many situations, they'll point to REITs um, like the MLPs or, or the MLPs, et cetera. You know, the problem is, is that ironically, in many situations, um, either they become really concentrated with passive holdings. And so, <laughs> excuse me, I believe a year or two ago, um, there was a, uh, a mall REIT that effectively had like 60% passive ownership because it happened to be, you know, one of these kind of ideal participants in a series of indices that are dominated by passive flows, semi-passive flows um, into sectors that have high dividend yield, for example. So when you think about the aging baby boomers, they would love to have investments that offer them a high dividend yield so that they don't actually have to sell their securities. They can try to live off of the interest income or the yield as compared to the, pre the principal, right? The problem, of course, is that those sectors become effectively really crowded. And as people decide to leave, or if there's a rebalancing in the index, it can cause catastrophe. And so we've seen a couple of examples of that. Um, business development companies are an interesting one where you see lots of active managers crowded into them because of their relatively high yields and the perception that they are underpriced. The problem is, is that the Vanguard index construction, the, the CRISP uh, 
Center for Research and Security Prices, the, uh, the methodology that they use prohibits inclusion of things like BDCs, right? So you are never going to get a bid from Vanguard on those products. And sitting there as an active manager saying that this is a place to hide, all you've actually done is join up with the people, a bunch of people who are getting fired, right? Like that's not a good look. There's a reason most people stop smoking at offices because it ceased to be something you could do with the CEO and instead became something that you did with the janitor, right? And that's, I guess, a terrible way to say it, but that's where we are. So if you surround yourself with active managers, you're basically saying, hey, look at me, I'm with a group that wants to get fired. And it creates some really, really perverse dynamics where the cheap that don't have the ability to be bought get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Cool. Jamie, I think there's one yeah. more question. For yeah, you. This I, is I, our, kind of... I think our final question. Well, maybe. Well, not our final question. We've got no, a final no, question, I got, but that's I got, like at I, the very I end. Got, I got the zinger for Mike, but. Um... <laughs> okay, all right. So this kind of parlays right into what you were saying there, which is very sobering and and kind of a gut shot, but let's talk a bit about benchmarks, right? So is it a fool's error to even try to beat a benchmark anymore? Does, do, does benchmarking, right, even just perpetuate the problem altogether? Is it possible to beat a benchmark? That's some good uh, questions here. Yeah, right. smart so, listeners. All right. We're gonna go back to the screen again. I'm gonna share with people, hold on one sec here. You love it, Mike. Don't deny it. <laughs> he's got a slide for he's got a slide yeah. for every question. Yeah. Actually, this entire thing was fabricated. We we, we came up with right. these questions. I've, yeah. I've got Mike, Mike submitted these questions. Ronan is actually one of my agents. <laughs> so look, the core idea around benchmarks is that benchmarks ultimately have a central mean around which you would expect behavior to move. And so if you think about time and return, there's kind of the asset class return and then there's variation around that, you know, that's supposed to look like something like this, right? Mm -hmm. A benchmark works under that framework. But if you think about what I've been talking about, or you think about the dynamics of what ends up happening, if time simply becomes another way of saying passive share gain, Right, then you actually change the surface and instead of having a stable return, you actually have a curved return, right? You begin to rise. And so what that means is that when you solve for something like alpha, alpha is literally just the intercept on a Y equals MX plus B equation, right? So if I looked at time zero, here's my alpha. I look like a good active manager. Right? I'm able to show that I keep pace with my benchmark. At time one, so I've moved further out, now I'm using a linear solution to a curved surface. What does this do? It drives my alpha lower. By the time I get out to time two, oh my God, look, my alphas have turned negative. So my benchmark is my death because I literally, and here's the reference to the paper I was referring to as September 4th, um, it, it, you know, you literally have set conditions up for your own failure. And explaining this to people, explaining that the tools and systems that we use for managing and evaluating active management is the core of the problem, right? That it's actually not, you know, we're all familiar with the thesis that the problem that exists in active management is that there's too many active managers. And so once passive becomes large enough, then the active managers can outperform again. It's just totally wrong. Um, you know, uh, pulling from Gabay and Koizhen, uh, um, you know, uh, using recent methods, you know, we can trace back time variation and markets volatility to flows and demand shocks from different investors. Passive investors are a different type of investor, right? And just to illustrate this very quickly, like, so again, this is a model. On the left-hand side, you actually see alpha for the active manager segment. In theory, this is the actual data. They're exactly the same, right? I mean, this is, this is a group of, of stupid random agents programmed to behave like active and passive managers. And that's what it says your output should be. It's exactly what you get. So it's, I mean, I'm, you know, hopefully it becomes very clear that I'm actually very distressed because I do think that we're in the process 
of destroying a common good. Markets are, are very important features. They help us allocate capital. They help us choose where incremental capital should be going. And we've abandoned that. Well, it, it certainly is a provocative um, thesis. I expect Ronan may be been a little confused about the quadratics, but um, but I yeah. I, but I, I was just trying to calculate yeah. out if I have sixteen ounce beers instead of twelve tonight, <laughs> how many less to get drunk? Exactly. Um, yeah, that's going to be on my chart, Mike. So now that we've wound up your your um, your your intellect, we're going to ask you a question that will kind of wind it right back down. But it's a question we ask everybody on. Boxes and lines, and I'll, I'll make it more uh, intellectual than usual. So usually the question we ask everybody at the end is, tell us their favorite Wall Street movie and why. But in addition to Wall Street movie and why, we'll ask you what your favorite Wall Street book is as well. There we go. That's the intellectual part, by the way. Wow. Um, fucking tough. <laughs> After every question that you've asked, been asked tonight, come on, this is a cinch. Yeah. Um, so, so first, I actually try not to watch too many movies about financial markets, um, uh, very simply because I, I like tend to find myself screaming at the screen in, in the big short. That's not how it happens. <laughs> Which is very awkward in a, in a crowded movie theater. Yeah, no, it, it, it drives my wife and kids crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll step back on the innocence of that and basically say the part of the reason I ended up going to Wall Street was the movie Wall Street itself. Um, took all the wrong lessons from it, right? You know, I wanted Daryl Hannah as my girlfriend, and you know, <laughs> that was, uh, um, you know, that that was the obvious takeaway for a 17-year-old boy um, mm -hmm. from that movie was that the key to getting Daryl Hannah as your girlfriend was to go to Wall Street. Mm. Um, the the in in terms of favorite book, wow. Um, Again, you kind of go back to your youth and, and what had a huge impact on you. Um, I, I just, I'll list off a couple, um, uh, you know, reminiscences of a stock operator, I think is a classic that yeah. everyone should read. Um, everyone will take away different components from it. But the thing that I always remember most is uh, you can't rely on other people for your expertise. And so I would encourage people who are watching this to not listen that what Mike Green said is therefore true, figure it out for yourself. Uh, another incredible, incredible book uh, is The Mind of Wall Street by um, Leon Levy, who was the founder of Oppenheimer and then Odyssey. Um, you know, there's a scene where he describes uh, building Oppenheimer and recognizing that he couldn't hire anyone who had gone through the Great Depression because they were incapable of taking risk. They had just been so beaten up that they were incapable of taking risk. And so I constantly think back on that in my mind because I know that if I become too concerned that I can't actually take risk for my clients, I, I'm not useful, right? I may save them from a mistake, but I'm never going to give them the opportunity to participate. Um, the last book that, uh, that, that I would say just, um, you know, really shook me to my core in terms of its insights was Phil Fisher's Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. And more than any book, particularly of that time period, Phil Fisher was unique in that he always focused on what was going to happen, not what had happened. And so value investing, which I, I naturally gravitate to, um, always encourages you to look back effectively and say, you know, is there the prospect of this company recovering? Are these assets too cheap relative to a potential recovery? Phil Fisher was instrumental for me in terms of breaking that mindset and instead thinking about what is going to happen. What can I project about the future that is different and distinct? And if I think about stocks as being cheap or expensive relative to that forward forecast as compared to something in the past, I think I'm much better positioned from that standpoint. I mean, we go on and on. There's uh, uh, an endless number of fascinating and wonderful books that I'm incredibly indebted to over the course of my career. But that's th those are places that I would encourage people to start. 
Nice, fantastic answers. I should have expected nothing less, to be completely honest. Well, they so, are. They, <laughs> you know, much, much more um, urbane and um, well-phrased than most of our um, uh, well, our guests are all wonderful. Jesus, are you about to attack our guests and then throw no, in your no, 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 fancy I'm not. English No, words? I'm not. Look, it's late in the day. I'm just trying to, you're, you're trying um, to impress trying to figure out how to Mike wrap up here. Because this yeah. is what yeah. he does, if you, Mike. If, if you guys want to wrap up in a, in a form that will uh, really cause people to struggle is, is go read Train Spotting. Then, then, then it's oh, that's like a good one. Yes, no, definitely. Your own mind, like Ronan does, and you yep. get to use the word shite a lot and ban and absolutely. Uh, yeah, they, they use some other words that you're not allowed to say in this country. But that is a phenomenal movie. I didn't read the book. <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's a phenomenal book and a phenomenal movie. But the, reading the book is honestly like digesting Finnegan's Wake or something. It's a, it's really? a modern. I, I'm going to go out and buy the book now. I never even I just watched the movie, but the movie's great. The, the soundtrack now. is amazing. I yeah. definitely will read that book. Mm -hmm. Ewan McGregor was an if, effing star. Wanna, if, if you guys want to see a contemporary movie that just came onto Netflix that I think is spectacular that you can watch with your children or with your significant other and feel much better, instead of watching the election tonight, I encourage you to watch Hunt for the Wilder People. It's available on Netflix. It's hmm. an amazing, amazing movie. Okay. Look at this. Ronan, do we, have a, do we have any gifts for our guest? Oh, I wonder. Um, now that Mike has given us all this intellectual knowledge for 70 minutes, <laughs> he's going to he fall out of his chair and we socks. present him with his very own pair of IEX boxes and line socks. But they'll be wow. on the way to you, Mike. They're very yeah. comfortable. I know, I know. It's too much. It's too much. But, uh, <laughs> can't. It's probably under the limit of your firm for accepting <laughs> gifts. I, I, uh, I very much appreciate that. Do you have them in king size? Because I wear a size 15 shoe. So. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. That's right, well, we'll crazy. Send, we'll, we'll send you two sets of socks. And some knitting needles. <laughs> yes. <perfect. laughs> no, but seriously, uh, we really, really appreciate you doing this. Our first live podcast. Um, <laughs> and, and perhaps it, the last, but I think it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. I had a blast. I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. Listen, Mike, it re really, really informative. Genuinely, I'm going to have to uh, pull my Peter Thiel and say there was a lot I didn't fully understand, but I took some notes down. <laughs> but, um, you know, thank you so much. We genuinely appreciate it. Maybe we'll have you back on again if they don't take us off the airwaves. So. I would appreciate Cheers. that. Thank and thanks everyone much. for joining in the questions. Thanks so much. Thank you. Come back to the boxes and lines another time. If I, I sound will. like that, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. All right, Mike. Bye. Thank appreciate you. It. Thank, Thank you all for listening. Thank you. That was not shite. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.